Thank you, worship team. That was really, what a blessing today. Um, so um, I'm Chris. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Table Life Church. If this is your first time with us, whether here in person, we also have a lot of folks also worshiping online too and maybe live, but also later this week, I just want to welcome everybody. And I'm glad that you're here because, of course, fall is upon us and it is pumpkin season. I am super happy. As you all know, I'm stocked up with coffee, by the way. Thank you to all who have donated to the cause of pumpkin lands. But um, anyway, um, so here's a phrase that you've heard before, but I bet that you didn't know the history of. And it's a phrase that's been around much, much longer than actually any of us have been alive, I would imagine right here. And this phrase is the phrase hot mess. Hot mess, who's heard of the term hot mess? Okay, maybe some way, shape, or form. It's really interesting though, because this phrase actually goes, it's not a recent phrase, like I said, it's been around a long, long time. It goes back to the 19th century. The 19th century, and what do you think a hot mess referred to? Any ideas? What what, did you say? You, you just shouted it out. Hair. What? What are you, 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 oh, it was Dave. It was Dave, he's a hot mess, okay. <laughs> we're gonna get to that in a minute, okay, so hang with me there, Dave. But yeah, what do you think a hot mess referred to? We're thinking like 19th century here. Anybody, what's that? Cooking metal, okay, we're getting close. Sim, something along there. Yeah, it had to do with food, yes. Like, you think of the term the mess hall, something like that, right? Anybody serve in the military, you know what one of those is like, what you're eating in that case. Or a mess kit, maybe you have a mess kit that you're along with. But, of course, since then, the term has changed a whole lot. And now, what does it mean? Not besides Dave. <laughs> now, what does it mean? It's actually, the definition of a hot mess is an attractive disaster, an attractive disaster, something or someone in disarray, but still remaining attractive in some way, somewhat functional, and looking a lot better than their circumstances actually are. So you know what that means? That is your goal, to be a hot mess, be an attractive disaster. Well, today we're starting a journey that we won't actually complete. We're gonna be um, starting a series called Messy Church, and we're going to talk about a lot of messes in this series. I'm going to confess some messes in my own life, some ones that we can laugh at now that were not funny when you were going through it. But we're going to talk a lot about messes even when it comes to church. And, um, and so I, I thought I'd start out. This is also printed in your, um, your worship guide, too. That's for you to follow along with if you're uh, taking notes or that kind of thing. But how many of you have experienced one or two of the following, or let's say, let, let's do this. How about two or more of the following? I'm just gonna give you a list, ready? After, I'm gonna ask you to put your hands up and you can confess, ready? Have you been in a relationship mess, a friendship mess, dysfunctional family mess, a work mess, hands down, okay. We're not confessing yet, Ben. A work mess, a team mess, a neighbor mess, a religious mess, an intellectual mess. Hands up if you've got two or more of those, right? Hands down. I'm not going to ask you if you scored 100, Ben, but um, ha-ha, right? Isn't that the case? It, like, life is messy, and maybe you're in one right now, you know? 
Maybe you're in a mess right now. Maybe you're in a lucky season in between messes. Um, But know this, that all of us are always one dumb decision from being in a new mess. We're only one dumb decision away and we're in a mess. But there's also some good news in that. There's some good news. And it's simply this, is that there's always someone whose life is a bigger mess than yours. Isn't that comforting? But, but, you know, we kind of laugh at that, but, but it's good news, actually, because that means it's not just you. It means it's not just me, because life is messy. People are messy, and that's what we're going to talk about in these next six weeks. We're going to unpack the first six chapters of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, and mess is actually what brings us here together today, to know that we're a mess And we need something outside of ourselves. We need someone outside of ourselves. But but also, I think it's important to, to remember that before we're critical of someone else's mess, we need to remember that we're a mess too. Before we're critical, oh, her mess, his mess, what's going on there, oh, that kind of thing, we need to look in the mirror and reflect that we're also a mess too, that we should be students of messes rather than critics of them. That, that we need to remember that we really do need one another and we can learn a lot from what somebody else is going through, but also the fact that we need others. We can't do it by ourselves. We need help. And the mess that brings us together is the mess that actually brought God near. It was the reason why Jesus came to us. That, that God reveals God's self in the context of mess. I mean, in the first century, that's what Jesus was born into, was a very messy world. Not a lot has changed, actually, since then. But, but years later, the interesting thing is that the Apostle Paul in Scripture, the Apostle Paul, he steps into the pages of history as a mess, but in a mess. As a mess, but in a mess. Because he started off as really this one-man wrecking machine. You know, he, he did come in like a wrecking ball, actually. And, and his goal, get this, his goal was to destroy the church. He wanted to be that wrecking ball that destroyed the church, that he was a, a, a Jew, and he decided that this was a knockoff of Judaism, all these people that are following Jesus, this guy that said to come back from the dead. It's absolutely crazy. But the story goes, God literally knocks him off his horse one day and gets his attention. And that's where he meets Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who was very well educated, who had a very prestigious job, he attended the best schools, knew multiple languages, more than most of us know. And in history, he became a Jesus follower. He became a follower of Christ. And then he went on, when he had that transformative moment, he went on to start churches, these little ecclesia, these little gatherings around the world at that point, these gatherings of Jesus' followers around the whole Mediterranean realm, and he began to write letters to them, to teach them, to encourage them, but also to address issues. And those are the letters that are found in the New Testament scriptures. And the letters, over time, they were collected and they were copied, and they were shared between churches, even ones that didn't actually, wasn't actually addressed to, because there were lots of really important teachings and things. Once again, we can learn from one another's messes. And that was compiled, that became part of our New Testament scriptures today. Well, one of the places that Paul traveled was to this place called Corinth. 
Corinth, and it's shown here on the map. It's kind of in relationship to Athens. And there's a summary in the book of Acts in chapter 18 that really overviews Paul's time in Corinth and how he planted a church there, Priscilla and Aquila. They actually were or this couple, uh, man and woman. They were together leading this house church. And mind you, Priscilla was actually listed first, which means that she was probably the the leader um, of leading that community. And he was there, Paul, the Apostle Paul was there, and he was teaching them the ways of Jesus, and he ministered there for about 18 months, a year and a half. And then after that 18-month period in Corinth, he went on to the next place. He went on to his next assignment. And then a, a period of time passes, a couple years pass, and Paul is in this other city called Ephesus, and that's where he receives word that things are not going so well back in Corinth, that there's some crazy stuff that's going on back in Corinth that he needs to address. And so he began a correspondence of, of correction to this, this young church of Corinthian followers of Jesus. And this was about 57 AD, historically. And so there's this correspondence of different letters, and there's actually four letters to the Corinthian church. We only have two of them. There were four. And there was one before our letter of 1 Corinthians, so I want to call that like zero Corinthians, right? Zero, and then we, now we have one, and then there were two others that followed that. And what we do now is, we know now is that those back and forth letters, that there was also some oral communication that was happening too, that Paul was getting a feeling for the situation, the really messy, messy, messy situation that was going on back in Corinth. Well, what was going on? Well, the core of the mess was division. The core of the mess was division. And what I want you to imagine here, uh, imagine for a minute a church that is wrapped up in division, that there's leaders of the church in the church that are promoted one against the other, the favorite pastor, the non-favorite pastor, the kind of warring bodies there. Um, they're, they're acting in all sorts of ways as far as to say like, okay, well, my freedom in Christ is to do whatever I want, so therefore I can do whatever I want. There's all sorts of immoral actions going on. There's Christians who are doing very, very stupid things. And then there's other Christians that are exercising their spiritual gifts very destructively, destroying other people. And, and of course, this was back in the first century, right? We don't have anything like that today. We can't really relate at all, right? Sounds messy. Things are similar. Welcome to the church in Corinth. It's a messy church. And so through this letter that, that Paul is writing, uh, what we can learn, though, we can learn what not to do. We can learn from their mistakes. We can also use it to examine our own lives and to see, you know, what is, what is God doing here? What is, how is God still at work in the midst of this mess? So let's jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses starting just with 1 through 3. So Paul starts his letter like this, and this will be also be on the screen. Uh, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this section of the letters, this is kind of like the, the welcome, right? This is the part that, that Paul is making nice-nice. Well, let's take a look at a couple of things that are going on here because Paul gives us a cast of characters from the start 
of this letter. First, Paul himself. I don't know if you know this, but Paul was, uh, while he was a, a, a follower of Judaism, um, he was actually born in Turkey. He was born in Turkey, but he grew up in and around Jerusalem. And he was a Roman citizen by birth. He kind of had this dual citizenship going on. And then later, he, he was educated at the feet of this, the, the, this guy named Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. And, and Gamaliel was one of the top leaders in the synagogue. And so everybody knew who Paul had studied under, what his education was. Um, and so he's the writer of this letter. Then we also have this other guy that's mentioned, Sosthenes. Sosthenes, who is that, right? Sometimes you read the Bible and you're like cruising through and you read all these names. And Well, these were actually legitimate people. This Sosthenes, um, Acts chapter 2, that's where you can first read about him. He was one of the synagogue leaders after Paul speaks in the synagogue in Corinth. See, what had happened was Paul goes to Corinth, and there's this, the first synagogue leader before Sosthenes. His name was Crispus. You know, these are great names for pets. You might not take note here. But you have Crispus. So Crispus is leading the synagogue. He's leading the synagogue. And guess what? Paul talks to him, and over time, he becomes to be a follower of Christ. And guess what? He gets kicked out of his leadership position at the synagogue. I wonder why, right? He follows Jesus. Well, the next guy is Sosthenes. He's number two. He replaces Crispus. And then guess what happens to him? He too comes to faith in Jesus, right? He jumps in to help Paul. What's with this? You're messing up all this, right? Well, so he joins Paul, and he's part of Paul's entourage here. And so he's in Corinth. And Corinth is this very, very wealthy center of trade and commerce. It's a bustling city and seaport. It has, it's home to about 200,000 people. And at the same time, there's all these different temples to all kinds of gods that people would come to worship. But it was also home to a lot of prostitution. And it was the prostitution at the time was tied up to the temples. That was part of a lot of the actions that was going on, as well as people would come to Corinth as for trade and all that sorts of things. But, but they also came for other reasons, right? Some other tourism that actually continues today in the trafficking industry. And that was what was going on. And at this time, so imagine this, this is about 57 AD. So we're talking a little over like maybe 20, 25 years after Jesus' resurrection. This is very close to that. Um, if someone called you a Corinthian outside of this place, you know what that was like? That was like calling somebody a Dallas fan. <laughs> uh, oh, we, okay. We're going a little far there in the back, right? So... I have to get my football jokes in, right? So, but it was an insult. <laughs> I didn't say eagles. Some of you are like, why didn't you say eagles, right? That's the insult. But, but if somebody said you're a Corinthian, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like you were insulted. It was a cuss word. You don't talk about that, right? We don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about Corinth. Like they just kind of do their own kinds of things here. And, and so Paul, though, it's interesting, though. Paul still identifies them as church, though. Think about that. He still calls them church, meaning that these are very messy, but they're also genuine believers. They're still followers of Christ. These are not make-believers. These are believers, even though life is messy, even though that they're engaged with all this kind of crazy stuff. And so he also reminds them in that part, though, that they're called to be holy, set apart, 
part of something bigger than themselves, a story bigger than themselves, a bigger purpose than themselves, that, that there is more to life, that being part of the body of Christ means that we're part of something more than just us. And central to the church, central to the church, of course, is Jesus. And he's reminding them of that because in the first chapter, the name Jesus is actually mentioned 17 times. 17 times in this first part that he's reminding them we need to go back to Jesus. We need to go back to Jesus. Isn't that true, right? We muddle up all this other stuff when it comes to church and religion. And we need to get back to Jesus and who he was and what he said and what he was about. Well, Paul continues in verses 4 to 6. He says this. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ in, among you. See, Paul is smart. He's setting this nice, nice greeting, of course, to gain the ear of their listeners. But we also have to acknowledge Paul is a very sarcastic guy. There's a lot of sarcasm when you, when you read this letter. See, because two things really characterize the Corinthian church, and the two things are arrogance and immaturity. Arrogance about what they were all about and what they were good at and how they didn't need to listen to anybody and they knew what was happening, and immaturity that was related to the same way of thinking, but that they were still young in their faith. They had a skewed assessment of their own maturity. But they're the, probably the only ones, though, right? <laughs> but they were very gifted, and Paul relates to that. They're gifted, gifts from the Holy Spirit. They were able to use in all different ways. But we have to remember this, though, that being gifted doesn't mean that you're mature. Being gifted does not mean that we're mature. I, I remember I had a teacher back in elementary school who, um, it was, uh, I guess, like sixth grade or so, who had this saying, uh, well, it's just a one-word saying, very, very succinct. He said, maturity, and he would write it up on the board. And of course, like, we were kind of like preteens and growing up, and um, there would be times in class, the kids, everybody would, like, be acting out or be, like, la like laughing at some, like, joke or something. And he, all he had to do was point to that word on the board, maturity, guys, maturity. See, that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, maturity, guys. Maturity, guys, it's time to have a little bit less of a self-assessment, a little bit lower self-assessment here, and think about where you are and who you are. See, in verse 10, he goes on to put his finger on one of the major issues that's happening here. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. Agree with one another in what you say, and that there not be any divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. See, the underlying need here, there's the division that's happening. The underlying need that, that's so much needed in this case is unity. Let there be no divisions among you. The word divisions, uh, he was actually writing in Greek, by the way. This is translated into English. You can have different translations of scripture that read a little bit differently depending on how they translated it. But the word that he uses here is the Greek word schisma, schisma, which means a split, a schism. From That's the word that we get from it, a schism, a division. But it also means a ripping or tearing apart. See, Paul goes here 
because it's foundational. That unity needs to be our foundation. And the first problem he's addressing is division in the church, saying that it ought not to be, that we need to be unified. I don't know if anybody's familiar with um, the show on Disney, uh, Disney Plus called WandaVision. Has anybody seen it? It's one of the Marvel shows. If you haven't seen it, if, uh, get somebody else's subscription or whatever. It's like $2.99 a month or something. I think it's free like the first month or whatever. But you can watch this show. Um, it's part of the Marvel series with like superheroes. If you're, that's like your thing, that's great. If it's not, um, I'm not one of those Marvel people, but I still liked it. And, um, and, and one of the, the characters, it actually takes place after this other movie, but I'm not going to get into all that. But, but basically the story goes, this, this lady Wanda, she of course has superpowers and that stuff, but she undergoes a lot of trauma and tragedy and loss. And what she does is that she goes and creates this world that is way back when. It's basically she recreates her life and, and her world as like starting off like a 50s TV show when everybody was so lovely and everybody behaved nice and everybody uh, treated one another and the ideal family and the neighbors and the, the children that eventually come into the scene. And it's just like a, a perfect story. But in it, she really has, she's trying to escape the reality of her present. But looking back, it's all rose-colored glasses. She's looking back and seeing everything is pristine and wonderful there. But isn't that the case with a lot of us, right? We do that. We look back at things and we tend to look at things with rose-colored glasses and our personal history and, and the greater history. Oh, back when the th good old days, well, maybe they weren't so good. And we tend to do that with the early church, too. We tend to say, a lot of times, church people will say, oh, we need to go back to what the early church was doing, the early church practices. Well, if we really, truly were going back to the early church, holy cow, Corinth, right? <laughs> wow, do we really want that? Like, we have to be careful because what we have to see from this is that in the early church, they were just as messed up as we are. <laughs> They're just, and, and, and some people deny the legitimacy of Jesus because they see Christians as being messed up. Well, guess what? 25 years after Jesus, church wasn't perfect either. Church wasn't perfect. Even though that's, that's not an excuse for us, not striving and growing and changing, but we have to recognize in those days it wasn't all together either. See, Paul goes on to describe what was happening here. So, so the city was prided on its intellectual life. They loved having teachers and philosophers come visit. You and I watch Netflix and stream, and stream things or watch our favorite shows, right? They had speakers that came into town. Think like a, a college town. You had all these intellectuals coming. You have the great speaker. Everybody's advertising. Go and see him. Go and listen to her. And they loved having that happen. And what happened, though, over time was you had different followers of different teachers. You had somebody that shared some kind of very abstract principle or philosophy, and you had everybody, hmm, that's a good idea. I like her. I like it. Okay, well, let's, let's go follow her. And then you had somebody else, ah, they weren't very good, right? Okay, so you had these factions. But they were always priding themselves on how much they knew and what they had. And Paul realized that the Corinthian church, they were doing this with Jesus and the leaders in the church, too. And they were ranking one over top the other. And we 
do similar things, right? We have our, our favorites, and it doesn't mean that we can't have favorites. Paul talks about this a little bit later, and we'll go into more depth with that. But, but we compare things, and, but, but sometimes it can cause division, but he, what he appeals to them is, despite that, to still have unity, to have unity. The word that he uses that we translate unity is karatizo, karatizo. It means knit or woven together, like your favorite fall scarf or sweater. It's knit and woven together to the point that you can't tear it apart. See, disunity in the body of Christ remains today one of the greatest scandals that compromises our witness. And, and, and of course, right, it makes sense because people see another mess in life and they want to jump right in, right, head first. They want to join it. Like they see a mess in church and it's like, yeah, that's for me, backstabbing, oh, I want some more of that, okay. People not getting along, like I'm all in for this, right? That's what people really, really want. But we can't find a solution to a problem that we don't admit exists. Mark Twain once said, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. We have to start with addressing division. We have to start with our need for unity. But the question is, well, how do you do that? How do we achieve unity? And this is talking about in the church, in, among Christians. Um, Paul's solution here, it's very simple. Go back to the cross. Go back to the cross. Go back to Jesus. Without all the extras and the things and the interpretations and the, kind of the non-essentials, go back to the cross and what Jesus did. And he says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, friends, we often misunderstand unity. See, unity... Unity does not mean agreeing on everything. It does not mean conformity. It means keeping focus on something greater, a bigger purpose. It's about living in humility and love. It's actually inclusive of diversity. That when we embrace unity, it's despite being different and maybe everybody having a little bit of a different shade, but that yet we come together because the cross is what reveals God's love to be cruciform, cross-shaped, meaning self-giving, unified, out of humility, out of love. Uh, several years ago, I attended a conference that um, was for all like church people and pastors, and they had different worship teams that were leading like a little time of worship before they would have like a keynote speaker come. Maybe you've been to something similar in your work or, or whatnot that way. Well, part of the host church's um, decor of their platform, they had this huge cross that literally stood like right here. And, um, and imagine this part of the platform wasn't there. They had the little podium up on the side here. Actually, it was like a music stand. And they had this, this huge cross. And, um, and I remember like day one of the conference, like you would have like the speaker come out from behind the curtain on the side and they would have to like step around the cross. It was a little bit awkward because this thing was like gigantic. Like, you know, here in New Cumberland, we have skeletons that are like 16 foot long, um, high that people put in their lawns for Halloween. Imagine a 16 foot high cross that's here. It, it, was, it was there. And so the first couple sessions, it was really awkward when the speakers would come out because everybody would have to like kind of like step around the cross. And then where do you stand, right? 
Do you stand in front of the cross? Do you stand at the side of the cross? Like, do you want to go like when you put your arms like that? Is that like, what do you do, right? And, and so I remember, I think it was after the first day, I remember hearing a conversation between one of the host site uh, pastors there and some of the speakers, and they were talking about this. And the one guy actually said this. He said, that cross is so annoying. That cross is so annoying. Can we move it? Can we get it like over to the side a little bit? It's in the way. It's in my way. Isn't that true though? Isn't that true that the cross gets in the way? The cross should be front and center every time we look at one another. Every time you look at another human being created in God's image to say, Wow, this, was, this is a, a human, this is a, a, purpose, a person who is loved by our Heavenly Father. That every time we look at it, one another, that's what Paul is saying. That's the way we achieve unity. It doesn't mean that we don't have different thoughts on this and beliefs in that, and that we're at different positions, or I like him and I like her and I'm going that direction, but we still have unity around who Jesus is in the cross. He continues in verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the age? Remember, he's talking about these intellectuals. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you know what the cross does? It requires us to check ourselves, to check ourselves first, to check our ego at the door or more likely to check it at the foot of the cross, to know that people, brothers and sisters, are not the enemy. People are never the enemy. And so it, really to unpack this, he says religious people basically seek signs. Intellectuals are seeking proof. The Jews didn't like a suffering Messiah one that would go to a cross. Like, what's with that, right? It's a stumbling block. To Gentiles, that was nonsense. People that didn't come from that background, they're like, what on earth, right? There's a guy that was put on a cross, and he died, and you said he came back. Like, what, what is even going on there? Why do I even care about this? See, the cross may be empty of its victim, but that does not mean it's empty of its meaning or its power. And what that love is, to say, I give my life for you. To say that God did that himself for us. But there's also a part of mystery here too. The mystery of God. And I'm not talking like Sherlock Holmes type mystery, but the mystery of God. It doesn't mean that we just say, okay, just believe, just have faith, you shall receive and don't question things, don't put things. I'm not saying that, but there are, is a part of God that's not fully understood. There's a part of what Jesus did on the cross that we may never fully grasp. But at the cross is where the ground is level, is where we are all equal. No matter our background, our privileges, our education, the systems we've grown up in, 
the places we find ourselves, what we do for a living, what our family looks like, the cross has ground that's level. And what was supposed to be an instrument of death became a symbol that we wear around our necks today, a symbol of new life. And Paul concludes, he says, well, God did cho- but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And if you were really honest, if we were really honest, in a lot of places, the cross is the only reason why many of us would actually be in the same room together. You know, I mean, imagine, you can have a Dallas fan and an Eagles fan and a Steelers fan actually together in the same room. You have people like me who love to run and people that are like, oh my gosh, if I'm running and something's chasing me, you better run too, right? We're all in the same room. We have retirees. We have young parents. We have teenagers. We have people from all different slices of life. You know, have you ever looked around the room, honestly, and said, without Jesus, I wouldn't be hanging out with these people for nothing, right? We're better together in unity. But that means that also we share cross vision. Cross vision, not WandaVision, cross vision. We see that, and you know this, that some of the most powerful moments in life happen outside our relational comfort zones even when it's messy, because people are messy. See, coming to the cross requires humility. Realizing, and I think this is true if we all did this before we started looking at someone else, if we realize that you know a mess when you see a mess because it takes one to know one. To know that me, I too am in need of grace. So, sum this all up, be a hot mess. Be a hot mess. Go ahead, take a picture of that. Say, we talked about this in church today, right? Isn't that great? But seriously, be a hot mess. Be a hot mess. Be an attractive disaster. An attractive disaster. Say, I'm a disaster, right? I'm a mess, but I'm attractive. But it's not because of me and what, how good I look or how you know, dressed up I am. But it's, it's because I'm focused on Jesus. That's what makes me attractive. And Jesus, how he lived, how he acted to be a hot mess. So will we be promoters of unity or purveyors of division? Because the church is called to fix our eyes on Jesus, focus on him first, who suffered the cross, who gave his life, the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting because Jesus himself never played the God card. The most powerful person in the room never leveraged his power for his own benefit. He leveraged his power for your benefit and for mine. Let's pray.